Abraham Lincoln said, Mars Hill is one of the greatest speeches ever given in history. Abraham Lincoln was no slouch as far as speeches go. You know, we've been in Acts 17 for the last couple of weeks. And Paul and Silas, this is Paul's second missionary journey. He's got Silas, Timothy, and Luke with him. And remember, he's moving toward Rome. Why? Because Rome is kind of the center of the universe politically. But Athens is the center of the universe philosophically, religiously. Even when Rome conquered Greece, they, they left intact the worship of all these idols, these gods, these Greek gods. They gave them Roman names, but they adopted the philosophies. In fact, the emperors were trained by the, the guys who were famous for studying in Athens there. Remember, it's the home of um, Socrates, Plato. Aristotle moved there. It, it was the center of intelligentsia. Anybody that could really articulate and think about philosophy. And you know what philosophy is? It's just man's attempt to explain the universe. Really. That's what it is. It's man's attempt to explain the universe really without God. Humanly to, to deal with the things that we have to deal with. And so Paul is there. Remember... Last week, well, actually it started two weeks ago. Remember two weeks ago as they pushed into Thessalonica, we saw them, Paul preaching there. Remember he came from Philippi, Philippi into Thessalonica, and when he gets there, he and Silas go into the synagogues. Some people respond positively, but there was a group that hired some thugs to run them out of town. So they run them down to Berea, which is a rural area, uh, in that area as compared to uh, Thessalonica. They go into the synagogues. They see people come to Christ there. But the same people that ran them out of town in Thessalonica come down there and run them out. And what ends up happening in Thessalonica is this guy named Jason, who was like their host, he let him stay with them, ends up putting up money as security saying, hey, Paul won't be back. They won't be causing any more trouble. And so Paul goes to Athens and he sends Silas and Timothy back to go follow up. Why? Because Jesus did not say, go make converts. What did He say? He said, go make disciples, teaching them all that I've commanded. So Silas and Timothy go back to Thessalonica to build into these believers there. To teach them the things of God. Not just to give them a ticket to heaven, but to teach them that they are to be priests. They're to put God on display in Thessalonica. And did they? Yes, because what happened years later? Paul wrote a letter to the Thessalonians commending them, talking to them about his love for them and how they can grow even deeper. And as far as we know, Paul didn't go back there. Why? Because Jason had put up money saying he won't be back. He did not want to break that commitment that Jason made. So he's in Athens. He's alone. And remember, we're looking, as Paul does these things, we, remember back in 17.6, it says, the 
the Thessalonians referred to these men as men who turned the world upside down. They were men of impact. And we looked at four principles from their time in Thessalonica and Berea that we, we kind of laid out some things that they did. They lived boldly. And boy, do we ever live in a time where we need bold men. We need men to act like men. The church has been feminized. Our culture has pretty much trashed masculinity. And why is it that Paul tells Romans, the guys at the end of Romans, to act like men? What does he mean by that? Well, I think he means be bold. Be, be bold. Act like a man. Be bold. Be the guy who's going to follow through. Be the guy who's going to take the step toward the gunfire. Live boldly. Paul did. He, every synagogue he got kicked out of, the next city he went to, he went where? Right into the synagogue again. He lived boldly. Second thing we saw was he spoke biblically. He knew the Bible. He knew the Scriptures and he spoke that way. And we gave examples of other guys in Scripture who lived boldly and who spoke biblically. How can we speak the Bible if we don't know the Bible? I'm amazed at how many times I've read through the Bible and yet reading it every day devotionally, still seeing things and going, wow, how has that never jumped out at me like that? And it's like when you grow spiritually, you see things different. It's almost like when you go into a forest, if you've never been trained in botany, then you see things completely different than a botanist who walks in there and looks at the forest. And so as we grow spiritually, God gives us more insight into passages. And we go, wow, now I understand that. It's kind of like a first grader. You can't give him a calculus book. You give him an arithmetic book. And then later he can see the calculus. The only problem is, this is arithmetic all the way up through differential equations too. Okay? It's all the way through. And so some people read it and they go, well, I can't understand the differential equations. Well, God's not asking you. See, our problem as men is not that we, we, we don't understand the Bible. It's that we don't do what we do understand. For the most part. So we're to live boldly. We're to speak biblically. We're to share inclusively. That means we don't stiff-arm anybody because of their race, ethnic background, their money, their position in life, their ideology. Nobody's outside the scope of God's power. And when we share the Gospel, we don't know, I'm not going to share with them because, fill in the blank. We share inclusively. And then we saw, we also, what? Suffer trustingly. We should expect suffering as God's people. If Jesus suffered, we should expect suffering if we're going to proclaim the Gospel to people. And so, that's what we looked at. And last week, we looked at as He uh, was in Mars Hill, or not really Mars Hill yet, He's in Athens. When He first comes to Athens, we saw two things about Paul that we added to that. One, we have to see with divine eyes. And again, we can't manufacture any of these qualities, guys. We can ask God for them, but He has to give them to us. But we, we, we ask God to help us see with divine eyes. And then the second thing is we saw is we have to engage with a divine message. 
We have to engage. That means you, you, don't, you don't sit back passively waiting for the people to come to you. You engage. Paul was so provoked that he engaged the culture. He went into the synagogue. He went into the marketplace. He went into the Areopagus, which was like a university almost. And so, as he's sharing with Stoics and Epicureans, if you remember last week, we talked about the difference between the two. It's like Florida and Florida State trying to get them together. Okay? It didn't happen, right? They're completely different in the way they view. Okay? The Epicureans were people that... The, the, the Epicureans were people that didn't believe in God. They were deists. They, they believed that God was detached. The Stoics believed that God was there, and, but there were many gods. They were pantheists. So you have two complete different worldviews, but they come together, what? In their ridicule of Paul. He said, this guy's an idle babbler. He's a seed picker. He just takes ideas from everybody else. And so what it does, it says they take him to the Areopagus. And it literally means they drug him there. So they're not bringing him there on a sightseeing tour of the Areopagus. They're taking him there. They want to know about this, quote, strange new teaching. I think you asked the question last week, this morning, a guy said, didn't they hear about Jesus in Athens? No. Why would they have? Well, they had 30,000 idols, but we know that they had not heard because what did they refer to Paul's teaching as? Strange new teaching. Okay, You don't have to be an FBI agent to figure that out. That if it's a strange new teaching, it means they hadn't heard of it. And he goes, yeah, but how? I mean, this is 50 years after Christ died. So, did they have the internet? Did they have the Canaanite news network? No, they didn't have that. They, they, they didn't have any of the stuff we have. So we just, a lot of times we look at Scripture and we're like, well, sure, they heard by then. No. Things were very localized, right? And so Paul brings this teaching. They drag him to the Areopagus and they say, tell us about this stuff. So he goes there and what their job was, they were the protectors of the gods. They were protective. They want to make sure that nobody blasphemed Zeus or Apollo. They didn't want people to be blaspheming the gods. And so they kind of they oversaw that. So they would bring people in and go, if they were too far out there for them, they'd go, nope, you need to be quiet. You're not allowed to go be talking in the marketplace about this stuff. And so that's where Paul was. What a great opportunity. Imagine for a second... Um, Tim, you get a call, then it's your daughter. Hey, Dad, I was talking to uh, some people, telling them about you, and they want you to come out to UNF and talk. You want to be, they want you to be the Christian representative. You're going to go talk about Jesus and the resurrection. And there's going to be all these college professors out there debating different philosophies. How would you respond to that? I mean, think about that for a second. I'd be like, cool, man, that's awesome. I mean, let's, say, let's go. Let's go. That, we should be so ready to pounce at something like that. Our first thoughts a lot of times is, ooh, fear. 
But no, we, we should be ready to go put God on display. Remember, as God's kingdom priests, we're not called to explain the universe. It's not, it's not our job. We, we are called to represent that we are His people and His story. What He says in His Word about the universe. And as far as we know, God said what? I created the universe. Right. Did he say how he did it? Yeah, he did. He spoke it into existence. Well, that's stupid. That's what they're going to say. Does it matter what they say? No. We are kingdom priests of the Most High God. Our job is not to convince anybody. Our job is to be a witness to people. And so Paul is in this, and I want you to see in this text today, what he's doing, he's really defending himself, but a lot of people have used this as a model for sharing the Gospel. Isn't it funny that Peter and John, when they were arrested in defending themselves, shared the Gospel, and here Paul, defending himself, shares the Gospel. He's in there and he, it, he goes through it and he shares the Gospel. He doesn't mention one Bible verse by address. And he doesn't even say the name of Jesus that we know of, at least in the text. Now he might have. I'm sure he said more than we have represented in the text because he spoke. I mean, he didn't just go in there and give them this one 30-second little speech, maybe a one-minute speech. He went in there... But what we have recorded gives us an insight into the way he shared with these pagans. And it's very instructive for us today because, guys, I'm telling you, when we share with people in our world, in our culture, they're pagans. They don't know the Scriptures. You're not going to get anywhere with most people in our culture if you start talking about Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Moses. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. And so, as we look at this text today, this is the greatest message ever told in the Areopagus, guys. There's not been anything... You know, it said all they do at the end of last week, it said all they like to do is sit around and tell new stories, right? This is the greatest message that's ever been shared in the Areopagus. And I find it so refreshing that God says, I'm going to send my servant Paul against all the philosophers. Remember, who's there with him? No one. He's there mano e mano uh, against, really, it's Paul versus the whole Areopagus. And the Areopagus wasn't just a place, it was kind of a body of people. And so as we look at this text, I want you to think about these two things. That God calls us as His kingdom priests, first of all, to discern the bridges with our audience. He calls us to discern the bridges with those we're trying to reach. So often when we go into witnessing situations, you know what we do? We go in with an agenda. We go in, instead of discerning the bridges, we we got to get Tom saved, man. And Tom's trying to tell us something and I don't even let him get his sentence out. I'm hitting it with another truth. Instead of discerning discerning the bridges that are there into Tom's heart and into his mind. 
And so we see that in Paul. Second, we are called to declare the bigness of our God and the truth about our God. We are called, you and I are called to simply declare the bigness of our God, like who He is, what He's done, and the truth that He espouses in His Word. That's it. You, you don't have to try to convince people that God created the world a certain way. You just live by that truth. And you espouse that truth. It doesn't matter what they think. You are a person of conviction like Paul. Paul lays out these truths about God and, and creation. Basically what he does is he takes them through Genesis, from Genesis to Revelation without ever mentioning an address in the Bible. But it's fascinating the way he does it. So we're going to read the text. We're going to come back and we'll look at each one of these. Okay? Starting in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards Him and find Him. Yet, He's actually not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. May God bless His Word. Notice in verse 22, Paul says, men of Athens, he's saying that, he's, he's being respectful to them there. He's not, this is not condescending. You know, Christians a lot of times get accused of being condescending in the way they talk. Paul's not condescending in any way, shape, or form. What he's doing here is he's saying, listen, I perceive that you are religious. I'm talking about a religious thing. I'm talking about my God. And my God is the God that you've got an altar to you don't know His name. I want to tell you about Him. But the term religious there, actually in the Greek, it means 
it, it means it actually literally fear of demons. They had a fear of demons or fear of the unknown, the supernatural. That's what that means, really. Like every man. You know, the problem with death is we don't know what's on the other side of it. And that, that, that fear is, encom- is encompassed in that. That fear that drives them to want to worship every kind of known deity to make sure they're okay for the other side. See, the Greeks did not believe in reincarnation. They believed that when the body died, the spirit was free. But they had this fear of gods, of demons. They called them gods. They called them Zeus, Apollos. They feared that the gods would get angry with them and they would have to somehow appease them. Because in the heart of every man, God has put eternity. Every man knows that this is not all there is. And Paul just brings that out. And notice what else it says. He says, I perceive. That word perceive there, it actually means with sustained attention. This is not just an observation. This is with sustained attention to. In other words, Paul is divinely looking at these through divine eyes. And he says, I perceive. Verse 23, he says, I observed. Paul is not aloof. How often do we go through our world aloof of what's happening around us as men? Paul is engaged. Remember that from last week? He was engaged. And so he's observing what's happening and he says, I found a bridge here. These men are religious. These men are worshiping and they've even got an altar to the unknown God. And it's the unknown God, not an unknown God. Listen, in every movie, every song that we hear, the arts are great at trying to address this eternity in our hearts. Remember, uh, for you older guys, you remember a group called Sticks? They had a song years ago called Show Me the Way. You remember that song? And that song just talked about Show me the way. It, it was, I need, I need to know that there's heaven somewhere, there's eternity somewhere, there's something. In every movie, if you let me watch a movie, I'll show you where there, it's addressing that eternity in the heart. There's a redemptive element there. There's something that yearning for something more than life here on earth. And so Paul finds the bridge there. He discerns this bridge and he's looking for it. And you know, a lot of our evangelism efforts, at least in my lifetime, early on in ministry, I was taught a lot of presuppositional type evangelism. Boom, 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 boom. This point, this point, this point, this point. That didn't work very well over in Russia when I got over there. Especially when I'd get out into some tribal areas in the Arctic tundra. No, the way they communicated truths over there was in story. Isn't it interesting that most of the Bible is made up of story? And and narrative evangelism, guys, is probably the best way to share the Gospel with people. You engage them with their story. And on that sheet I gave you, if you look on that 
one, one side of the sheet, it's got a little, a little graph here, um, not a graph, but a little diagram of their story. It's the starting point. And I want you to notice what happens with each circle as you progress down the road. Yes, it gets bigger. Why? I'm saying that there's more emphasis given to... And what's the biggest circle in it all? A Jesus story. The Jesus story. Not a... Notice there's a difference. A Jesus story is a story of Jesus encountering somebody. The Jesus story is what happened on the cross. It's, it's His dying on the cross for the sins of mankind. And so this is narrative evangelism. And this is how I've shared the Gospel now. I start with the story of the listener. And that's what Paul's doing. He's discerning the bridges in, the, in between each step. So with a, with a listener, I'll give you an example. When I was in Texas, in Cypress, Texas years ago, we had just moved down there uh, from Florida. And I, I could tell... The neighbor did not come across as a man who really had a relationship with the Lord just by things he said and his, you know, the little time I'd spend around him. And so one day I'm out at my mailbox and he goes, he was out of his and he goes, hey Doug, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. He goes, do you ever get bored with your marriage? And now when, when a guy asks you that question, something's going on in his heart, Right? And there's two ways I can respond to that. I can respond with that, no, man, my marriage is great. I, I, you know, I, I love my wife and we have a great relationship. And immediately what happens? Instead of being a bridge there, I built a wall because he's not going to want to talk to me. Because one, I don't even identify with what he's sharing. But as I was sitting there, I prayed and I said, Lord, how, how do I respond to this? And And... I shared with him, I said, um, you know, there was a time in my life when I was in the Marine Corps that I pretty much tried to ruin my marriage. He goes, really? How? And I said, well, I thought it was all about me. In fact, I, I saw my wife really as somebody who was there just for me. And I, she was pretty much an object to me. And, and when I didn't care for her uh, because she was making me mad or whatever, I discarded her. I didn't shepherd her. I didn't take care of her. I didn't see us as one. And, uh, but I felt that same thing that you were talking about. Bored. I, I wouldn't call it boredom with me. I was just dissatisfied. Is that how you feel? Yeah. And it led to a conversation that then I was able to go and share further on my story about how God got my attention and changed my perspective. And I said... You know, but now it's not that way because God did something in my life. I don't know if you believe in God, but I do because He changed me. How did He do that? And it led to a conversation. So we got to discern the bridges there and try to use those bridges to go from their story, which usually is going to identify a felt need, to our story which deals with the creational need. What is the creational need that Mike was talking about there? It's the need for relationship. And the greatest relationship, the best husband you can be, is when you're the best follower of Jesus you can be. Right? 
I mean, if you really want to be a good husband, you need to be a good follower of Jesus. If your relationship with God is screwed up, your relationship with your family is guaranteed to be screwed up. I mean, it can be screwed up even if you are in relationship with God, but it's going to be a whole lot worse if you're not in relationship with God. And so you bridge that gap and you look for those bridges there. And then you go, you know, the Bible, I don't know if you believe in the Bible, but in the Bible, it tells a story of Jesus encountering somebody who really was kind of, that they, uh, they were like our wives. <laughs> they were the victims. In fact, there's one lady that was a victim five times. And it tells the story of her encounter with Jesus because she was married to men who were probably like you and me. And what happened is she, she, she had been passed off, passed off, and passed off, and she felt like dirt. But you know what? Jesus came along and came into her life and gave her hope. And there's also a story in the Bible of a young man who went away because all he wanted to do was live for himself. That's me, Mike. That's who I was. And the Bible says that when he realized that produced emptiness and nothing and left him really, really needy, it says that God was waiting for him to come back. And that's what he did for me. And he came back. He changed my life. He changed my marriage. And, and do you want me to tell how he did that? How he really did that? It was my realization that I wasn't in a right relationship with God. And sharing, then you get into the Jesus story. But you see how you just progress that way? It's much more natural instead of feeling like somebody's trying to, you're trying to sell them a used car or an insurance policy. Nothing against those people, but you know what I'm talking about, right? When you go to those places, that's what you feel. And that's what sharing and witnessing has evolved to instead of what Paul's doing here. He didn't go in there and tell them they were going straight to hell. He goes, hey, I see you guys are religious. And I even saw this. And he goes, hey, let me tell you about that God. I know Him. And let me tell you about it. And so, that's what he does in verses 24 through 20 or 31. As we progress through the sharing of the gospel, we got to get to the point where we declare the bigness of God. We declare his truth. And that's what Paul does. He, he, he doesn't just look for these bridges. If we just look for the common things, and that's what happens a lot of times too in evangelism, we will have these common areas we try to build friendships you've heard people talk about friendship evangelism and they become friends but they never get to the point of confronting people with the truth i i had a person earlier today who just said well what do i do about this my, my family member says this and and i i don't know and i said well why won't you just say this well they might get offended well of course they're going to get offended by the truth if, if their God is the God of the world and you hit them with the truth of God, it's going to offend them. But as long as it's not your personality that's offending them, you speak the truth to them. You tell them the truth and that's what Paul does. In verse 24, he says, the God who made the world and everything in it. He starts with Genesis 1. He didn't say, you know, in Genesis 1, he says, the God who made the world. 
and everything in it. Romans 1 says what? God's put eternity in every... There's nobody without excuse. You look at creation, you know there's a Creator. When I was in Russia, I used to go over there and I'd love to go in the universities and talk to them. Um, and I'd start off because they were all atheists in these universities I'd go to. And I would, I would, I would start off, I'd, I'd, I'd get a uh, Coke can and I'd hold it up and I'd say, you guys know how this got here? It's incredible. See, millions of years ago, there was nothing. And then all of a sudden, there was this big explosion and this brown, sticky fluid starts coming out of the ground. And, and out of that, that time that just elapsed over years and years and years, aluminum began to form around that brown, sticky fluid with actually a pop top that sealed it perfectly, held in the carbonation uh, and the sticky fluid together in such a way. And then over time, red paint began to appear on it. And then white lettering, C-O-K-E. I said, isn't that crazy? And they, they just, they're all looking at me. And I said, well, that's what you believe? You believe that's what happened to us? But you don't believe it can happen to a Coke can? That's crazy. Why do you believe the human eye, 42 million nerve endings... And, and, and you think we just came out of nothing like that. No creator, no designer. But see, nobody challenges those false beliefs. And they just become part. And that's the way these, these Stoics and philosophers were. They're trying to explain away creation in human reasoning. And you can't do it. And, and so Paul says, Yahweh created the world. Yahweh reigns over the world. He says, the God who made the world being Lord, that's master of heaven and earth, doesn't live in temples made by man. Now, when he's saying this, the Stoics are going, yes! They're in with him. They're, the Stoics are loving this. The Stoics like this. And they said, yes, nor is He served by human hands. You know who likes that? The Epicureans. You see what Paul is doing here? He's engaging both belief systems at the same time and promoting and witnessing about Yahweh. He says, though He needed anything since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Wait a minute. God is involved? He is involved? The Epicureans are scratching their heads here. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Now He's into Genesis 2. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, you know, when I was in uh, the, the Arctic Circle, <laughs> somebody asked me while I was over there, they said, um, hey, um, why do people live here? <laughs> the life expectancy there is 35 years old. When I was there, it was 45 below zero. And they're like, why do people choose to live here? I said, hey, let me take you to a passage in the Bible. You ever been to Acts 17? It says having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and hope that they might feel their way towards Him. I just want to tell you guys, I praise God it doesn't take 40 degree weather below zero to make me seek God. 
But God determines where you live, when you live, the timing of it. Why? It says, so that they might feel that word there is grope their way towards Him. Yet He's not far from any of them. Have you ever thought in your life, man, why does God feel so far away? He's never far away from you. You're far away from Him, but He's never far away from you. Paul says, listen, Yahweh made us and He placed us at specific times and places that we might seek Him and find Him. And then he quotes from Greek poetry, a guy named Epimenides and Aratus. One is... um, one is uh, from Crete, Epimenides, and Aratus is from Cilicia, which, where is Paul from? Tarsus, which is in Cilicia, right? And so he's quoting their poets. You guys ever pay attention to what's going on in the culture? He's quoting their poets. You know, when I preached a long time, I used to preach a lot uh, and use illustrations from movies. You know why? Because in every movie, there's that yearning. You remember Gladiator? Men, what we do today echoes in eternity. True or false? Yes. I mean, there in all these movies, you hear that yearning, that yearning that God placed in every man's heart. And Paul quotes from these poets. By the way. Paul knew about the military. What did he quote in Ephesians 6 when he wrote Ephesians 6? He goes through the armor that the military guy wears. Paul knew the culture. And a lot of times as Christians, we want to stick our head in and not know what's going on in our culture. Not be aware of what's going on. I just want to go to church, man. I'm just going to go to church. I'm going to learn these verses. I'm going to memorize this. And they're just going to all die and go to hell. That's what it seems like a lot of times we want to put our head in the sand. Not Paul. Paul engaged. And then notice verse 30. Well, let me go back. The reason he's quoting their poets is he says, listen, we are indeed His offspring. If we're His offspring, we ought not think that a divine being is made out of silver, stone, or gold. An image formed by man. He's he's using the logical argument that, listen, if we are made in the image of God, why are we trying to make God in our image something we create over here? And he's, he's appealing to that, to them, to their reason. And then verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Do you know what the Greek word all means? All. (laughs) That's what it means. You know what the Greek word everywhere means? It means everywhere. Have you guys heard about India repenting for Hinduism? They haven't done it. Are they commanded to do it? Oh yeah. What about Tibet and Buddhism? What about the Soviet Union and atheism? China and communism. We're all commanded to repent. Paul doesn't sugarcoat this. 
But notice he's not pointing a finger at him. He's talking about God has commanded all men. He's overlooked times of ignorance. He's not saying he didn't notice. What he's saying is he didn't bring his wrath down, but now he's commanded every man to repent. When's the last time you heard somebody really talk about repentance? When's the last time you talked about repentance? It's part of every gospel conversation I ever have with anybody. To tell them. I may not use the word repent. What it means is, you're going in this direction and God says, you got to go this direction. Now wait a minute. I can't go that direction unless He enables me to go that direction. So you got to ask Him. Repentance means acknowledging. See, there's two types of repentance. There's worldly repentance and there's godly repentance, Paul says. Worldly repentance is being upset over your consequences. You make bad choices. I'm in jail because I broke the law and I'm upset. There's a lot of jailhouse conversions. Not all of them are authentic. I don't know too many men who are caught in an affair or caught with a pornography problem that aren't upset about getting caught. That's not repentance. Repentance is saying, I acknowledge that this is wrong with God and I don't want this to be in my life anymore. I don't want this to be a part of my life. I want God to take it away and I want to go in a new direction. I want Him to take me in a new direction as far as this goes. That's repentance. And so that's what Paul says. He says Yahweh commands us to repent. Verse 31, what does he say? That He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. Who is that? Jesus. It's Jesus. And of that He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. In other words, He's conquered death. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, they mocked. He offers mercy and forgiveness through the resurrected Messiah and Jesus. And before you say, well, He didn't say Jesus there again, this is not capturing every bit of the conversation. But if He talked about Him being resurrected, what was He resurrected from? How did He die? He died on a cross. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 2? I didn't didn't come to you with lofty words of wisdom. I came to you preaching what? Just the Jesus and Jesus crucified. And so, Paul gave him Jesus. That outline I gave you guys, here, right here, on this side of the, you know, on the back, I've used that outline for probably, gosh, close to 20 years. And I've refined it. And you know how I refine it? If you look on the right, it says, write out the Gospel story. I take those four main things on the left side and I write them out in my own words so that the way I say it is the way Doug McCary communicates that. It's truth 
that I say where I'm not saying something. It's kind of like, have you ever heard preacher, pe- people pray, O thee, thou great Holy One of God, and they start using language from some pastor they had when they were six years old because they think they need to talk like that. When you talk to people about Jesus, you should talk the way you talk, Aaron. You should talk to them the way you talk about me to somebody. But you talk with an urgency to get them the truth. And so, in this outline, God's purpose. We're created by God for an intimate, dependent relationship and partnership where we honor and glorify Him by putting Him on display to a hurting world. Our problem, we choose to be self-led, self-righteous, and ignore God's rightful place as ruler in our lives. His punishment for our rebellion is death and judgment. God's provision because of His love. God sent His Son Jesus as our rescuer. His life, death on the cross, and the resurrection. Our response, turn from trusting in self or anything else to relying totally on Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's, that's the Gospel message. If you go, guys, and you look at Paul, what he did, verses 29 and 30, I'm sorry, verses 24 through 28, God's purpose. He lays that out. God, Yahweh, created the universe. He created man and He put him where? That they might seek Him. He's talking about that first part. Second, our problem, verses 29 and 30. We choose to be self-led. We seek idols instead of God. We build idols made with human hands from art and imagination. But, verse 31, God's provision because of His love, He sent Jesus, a man who He's going to judge the earth. Verse 32-34 through 34 is our response. We see some mocked, some wanted to know more, and Damaris, Damaris and uh, Denisius trusted. We cannot preach the Gospel of Jesus without talking about creation, guys and having a good theology. We can't. We can't do that. So many people just want to go to the New Testament. you got to start with God, not with Jesus. You start with God and His creation. We, we can't talk about salvation without judgment either. Today's culture, the culture you and I live in, needs a bigger view of God, a bigger Gospel, the full Gospel, what Paul calls over in Ephesus, the whole purpose of God. And, you know, if we don't speak like Paul spoke, we need to step back and say, why am I not bold like Paul? Why am I not speaking? Well, it might be because we don't feel what Paul felt. And if we don't feel what Paul felt, it might be because we don't see what Paul saw. And that was the order. He saw, he felt, and he was moved to action. And that's why divine eyes are so important. When Paul walked around Athens, he didn't just notice the idols. Remember, he gave them sustained attention. It bothered him. He looked and he thought. He pondered. And then God built a fire in him like in Jeremiah. He says, I can't keep this inside. He saw men and women who were created in God's image who weren't worshiping the one true living God. So as we leave today, I want you to think about these questions again. What do you see? What do you feel? And what are you going to do about it? What do you see? What do you feel? 
and what are you going to do about it? Randy, we've closed our time.